welcome to another podcast in our 25 years of nursing at Melbourne. Following Professor Sancha Aranda's successful Marion Barrett lecture, today we catch up with Sancha to answer some of the questions we didn't get to on the night. Thanks so much for joining us again, Sancha. And thank you for a wonderful Marion Barrett address, which obviously sparked a lot of thought around social inequalities and the role of the nurse. I think we have five questions we didn't get to on the night, so let's get cracking. We'll start off our questions with one from Stephen McKeever. Stephen says, Sancha, super presentation. To address some issues raised, do you think we should be encouraging nurses to be increasingly politically active? It's a great question and it really depends a little bit on what you define as politically involved. So if you're talking about politics at the government level, then we absolutely need our professional organisations to be engaging with governments on many of these matters that are important to nursing practice and to patient outcomes. But I think it's important that nurses see small p politics within their unit, within their hospital, within their community, as opportunities to really demonstrate what nurses know and how they can help patients and communities and families manage some of these issues, knowing where the resources are, for example, or advocating for resources in your community are all part of being political without necessarily thinking about that as politics. Thanks, Andrew. Our next question is from Zarina Tompkins. How do you see the impact of social determinants changing with increased digitalisation of healthcare? So the digitalisation of healthcare works both ways, I think. And we saw this rapid transition to uh, telehealth during the pandemic last year. And what stories we heard when I was at Cancer Council went both ways. So for people in the country, they no longer had to travel to the city for appointments because they were moved to video conferencing and hopefully that will be a permanent change that will really reduce the costs and improve access for those patients. But on the other hand, we also heard stories of families who had one telephone, mobile phone that contained their internet access and they had a couple of children home having to use that internet access for school and homework. And those experiences really heightened the disadvantage and lowered the access. So the more we can put online or into digital format is always good, but that is only as good as how closely we assure that people have access to that material. For many of those families, it was also things like there was might have been one computer for three or four children and having to figure out time and access to those for things like Um, participating in classes and so it really was very eye-opening for teachers as to the sorts of inequalities that existed for their families. I think one of the reasons that we don't know about these um, experiences from our patients is because they are ashamed to tell us. They don't want to let us know that they're struggling and because we don't normalise the experience of financial burden for example or having less access to these kinds of things within our normal conversation with patients. They don't know that it's something they can raise with us. And so I think making the sorts of questions about is cancer likely to have a material impact on your capacity to look after your family, to feed them, to pay your rent, just should be normalised into the conversation. If the answer's no, then that's fine. But it may be that we can really point 
people in the direction of services. So one of the things that I learned when we were working through the informed financial consent work was that there are people out in the community called financial counsellors and they're essentially volunteers. They've gone through a training program and they offer their services in helping direct people um, for, no- for nothing. And in fact, a nurse contacted me directly to say, I'm a trained financial counsellor, did you know about us? And so making sure we know about those resources and how to access them for patients is really important. And Cancer Council, uh, for example, has pro bono financial and legal services available. And, and quite often those um, staff on those services are able to negotiate a staying of things like utility bills for a period. And so there really is services out there that I think most of the nurses on the front line may not know about. And John Thompson asks, coming from an ED nursing perspective in a time of the four-hour NEAT targets, are you aware of any innovative models in the ED setting that allow nurses to give time to patients to firstly identify any social inequalities experienced by their patients and secondly to attempt to address these inequalities experienced by their patients? So since the lecture I've had a chance to look at this for you John on the published literature and John there's nothing and in fact very little ED research has ever focused on social determinants of health and particularly from a nursing perspective. My view would be that this is an area ripe for nursing research across all parts of our discipline and the paucity of research even in understanding the nurse's role, the sorts of ways in which nurses might be in a, put in a position to do something about this, let alone intervention development. It's absolutely wide open. So for all of you considering a career in research, I'm handing it to you on a plate, um, get active and really happy for you to come and talk to me if you want a help with getting on that ladder. Thanks, Sancha. The next one's from Jeanette. The role of nurses in primary care is an ideal setting for some of this work as well. A review of Commonwealth funding of these roles and a clearer scope of the role of practice nurses would be so beneficial. So I 100% agree that primary care is an ideal place to really begin to think about the impact of social determinants on health outcomes. And I can remember a presentation from a doctor in Canada who talked about that the importance that he, the most important thing he thought that he needed in his practice was the ability to prescribe food um, through food vouchers because of the impact that had on people's health behaviour when you had to choose between feeding your family and seeing your doctor. Uh, Given that that's unlikely to happen, we also need to acknowledge that with the loss of the practice payment incentives for general practice, the roles of nurses have really been quite constrained because that was where the innovation funding came from and now everything's pretty much associated with a billable service. And so we would need to make sure, I think, that these kinds of assessments are built into chronic care plans, for example, and find innovative ways, certainly in the short term, for making sure that these issues are dealt with and at least assessed and people are pointed in the right direction. Yeah, so I I think really looking at how we train and, and educate practice nurses around doing clinical assessments In my lecture, I talked about the inverse care law. Should we be putting more of our nursing hours in primary care towards those people with the highest likelihood of poorer outcomes? And so actually organising our practice around some of the health inequality issues would be a great innovation in my view. Thanks, Sancha. The next question is from Diane Crellin. 
Thank you for a wonderful presentation to highlight an incredibly important but sobering topic. For many, the inequality is hidden. Do you think that the circumstances that we found ourselves in in Victoria last year, which highlighted the impact of casual work, crowded living conditions, etc., on their risk of COVID infection, and therefore the risk to the broader community, will increase community and government efforts to improve health and social equality? So certainly the pandemic showed up the inequalities. And it provided a really great platform for ACOS to argue for its Raise the Rate campaign for New Start, for example, or Job Seeker, that people got $3 a day, not very much money. But I think people's memories are very short. And it's also not really in the vernacular of liberal and conservative governments to focus on advantage or disadvantage and justice and those kinds of narratives they just don't play out because the narrative is really one of if you put enough effort in as an individual you will be fine and we'll just create the jobs and you'll get them whereas we need different narratives we need to be able to talk about the long-term impact of disadvantage in children we need to be able to place this into a broader economic narrative and so One of the things that I think Melbourne University has an opportunity to do is really to bring together a collective of thinkers around how different narratives might speak to different parts of the political spectrum to begin to increase the sophistication of our language. And I've been talking to the Dean of Arts about doing just that. So I think there are huge opportunities to mobilise the skills and resources of a broad range of people across the university that probably never talk to each other but all have an interest in this kind of issue to mobilise effort that can be used within governments. Thanks, Sancha. And our last question is from Ellen. Ellen Robert asks, Inequality can impact in small ways, not always obvious. People on pensions with leg ulcers cannot afford high-tech dressings, which leads to prolonged healing time, etc., This is a daily problem in general practice. Would you like to comment on that, Sancha? So over the last 20, 30 years, certainly from when I was first working as a clinical nurse, there have been a lot of the costs that have been pushed out to patients. So something like a a leg ulcer, we used to send the patient home with a box of materials. They'd come to the hospital surgical supply department and pick up their renewed supplies, whether that was colostomy bags or nasogastric feeding equipment or leg ulcer materials. Now they have to go and buy that themselves. And these are all the hidden costs that are not counted in the formal out-of-pocket costs equation that do lead to financial burden. And what you hear from patients when you ask about these things is that they make substitutes. So they might buy a couple of the fancy dressings and they've got those on when the district nurse comes or when they arrive at the clinic. But in between times, they're doing their own thing and we wonder why their leg ulcers don't heal. In those sorts of circumstances, making a real assessment of the person's capacity to pay for what we prescribe whether that's medications or dressings and other supplies, should be a really critical part of nursing assessment because we may need to find alternate ways either of getting a supply through an appeal to a company to provide pro bono support or whether we actually need to look at an alternative approach to treatment that is of lower cost. Thanks so much, Sanja. That's the end of our questions from Marion Barrett. 
Thank you again for your wonderful, thought-provoking Marion Barrett lecture, which I think has inspired so many questions and really has been a call to action for all of us. If you missed the Marion Barrett lecture, you can still catch it online through the University of Melbourne Department of Nursing website or via the link below.